A rotorcraft is a flying vehicle that achieves heavier-than-air flight by using rotating blades to generate lift. A helicopter is a type of a rotorcraft, but there are quite a few other variations on this theme, defined primarily by the number of blades they utilize on their rotors, which are the spinning bits, but also the number of rotors they have. A typical helicopter has one primary rotor with four blades, though they often require a complementary tail rotor or some other type of mechanism that allows the craft to apply force along a different axis than the main rotor so it can maneuver in three-dimensional space rather than just being able to go up and down. Other variations on the helicopter theme exist, however, including dual main rotor models that grant the craft additional carrying capacity Compound helicopters that pair a primary rotor with some other kind of propulsion source, like a jet engine, so they can take off and land vertically, but then fly a bit more like a jet. And quad rotor craft, today often called quadcopters, which use four primary rotors spaced out equally around the center of mass of the craft. This latter setup has become especially common in the drone space, as although many long-range and extended-duration military-grade drones use plane-like propulsion systems, those meant for shorter-distance use and those sold on the consumer market are more likely to be rotorcraft, and the dominant design for those purchasable by everyday people is the quadcopter setup, with four rotors wielding somewhere between two and six blades apiece, which provides relatively stable and versatile flight for remote-controllable drones of a variety of sizes, from those that will fit in the palm of your hand to those that are about the size of a large dog or even a human or car. Although military and consumer-grade versions of such craft are fairly recent innovations, the helicopter became an industrial product in the 1940s with the introduction of a few vital stabilization technologies and the integration of electric motors into what already existed. Early versions of the general concept were documented in China as early as 400 BC, and curiosity and toy versions of various rotorcraft were in circulation around Europe in the 15th century. A steam-powered helicopter was developed in France in 1861, which is also where and when the term helicopter originated. And a flurry of helicopter concepts captured the public's imagination in the late 19th century through the 1930s. Rotation-powered flight evolved roughly parallel with wing and propeller-based flight. The Wright brothers tallied their first controlled, sustained flight of a heavier-than-air vehicle at the tail end of December 1903, and a handful of other inventors around the world at almost exactly the same time chalked up similar milestones with variations on the plane concept. Things really started to heat up in this space with the advent of World War I, which saw at first early biplanes being used for observation purposes, and then the mounting of machine guns 
on them, which converted these early aircraft into terrifying and novel weapons platforms. Around that same time, early helicopters were being refined, but the models inventors were producing were underpowered and couldn't lift much of anything. So it wasn't until after the war that these vertical takeoff vehicles would become practical enough so they could be iteratively refined and then eventually ready for their own terrifying debut as observation and transportation craft, but also, ultimately, hovering weapons platforms during the Second World War. Today, I'd like to talk about a trio of new developments in the field of mostly rotor-powered drones and how these developments might influence what comes next. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Because I'll be touching on three different but interconnected topics today, I'll have three different articles to use as starting points. The first comes from IEEE Spectrum, and it's entitled, Flexible Monocopter Drone Can Be Completely Rolled Up. This piece describes the development and properties of a new drone design that actually isn't all that new, in the sense that we've known about this method of flight for a long time, but is quite new in this specific application. And it's not just new, it's actually fairly amazing to watch. I'll link to the article in the show notes, and you can check out the video of this thing there. But in essence, the drone design allows it to achieve a type of flight similar to what we see in Samara seeds, sometimes simply called maple tree seeds. Those little single-wing spinning seed pods that allow the maple tree to spread its whirlybird seeds much further than if they simply dropped to the soil right beneath the tree. These seeds create a center mass and a little flattened piece of papery material forms a wing. And the wing causes the seed pod to spin around the central mass of the seed, propelling these seeds much further than they would have otherwise been able to manage, lacking this aerial evolution innovation. This monocopter, called the FSAM, short for Foldable Single Actuator Monocopter, which was developed at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, is predicated on the same principle. It's a single wing built out of light wood and segmented, so you can roll it up into a cylinder, and it has a single rotor that spins three small blades at one end and a battery connected to that rotor via a flexible cable at the other end. The whole drone can be stored in a little tube for transportation. And to use it, you just unroll it and either lightly chuck it like a frisbee or set it on the ground. And it spins around the central axis of the battery. So the battery is a bit like the seed in the maple seed pod example. And the rotor keeps the thing spinning. So if left unpowered, it just spins and lands lightly on the ground because of its shape. But the propeller allows it to maintain that flight for about 16 minutes using a couple of tiny over-the-counter batteries. The effect is a bit like if one of those whirlybird seed pods just kept spinning for 16 minutes and never landed. It's kind of bizarre to watch. This is interesting, not because it's a design that is likely to serve everyone's purposes, 
or because it'll influence the larger drone market in any significant way. But the nature of its flight, a single wing with a rotor spinning around a central axis, and the inexpensiveness of its materials, there's nothing special or pricey involved in its construction. And the portability of this drone body type means we could see it iterated and potentially utilized for some specific use cases, like reconnaissance or even quickly mapping out an area by perching some kind of camera or LIDAR equipment on the wing, which is something the group that developed it has already tried and found to work, though software will need to be developed to process the resulting images and other data, as they're quite blurry when unprocessed because of all that spinning. This is representative in some ways of one of the developmental paths we're seeing in the world of drones right now. Some folks are opting for fancier, more expensive, more impressive, and sci-fi-like technology, but others are aiming to make the general concept cheaper, more portable, and more attainable using non-specialized materials and aiming to fill niche and less spendy needs as a consequence. One other interesting development along this same path for drones is the introduction of reusable modular components that can be attached to just about any drone body of a certain size and weight, which allows for maximal reparability and the use of local materials for the main mass of the drone, both those that use rotors for lift and those that are more like planes, meant to primarily glide from place to place which in turn can make them more useful in certain locations, especially poorer regions with a lot of rural space to cover and in areas where it's expensive to ship this kind of technology in the first place. The ability to just deliver some rotors and batteries instead of a whole craft, allowing the end user to attach those components to a body that they create locally is a compelling development that could allow drones to be used more widely and equitably. The second piece I'd like to unspool today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled Drone Startup Plans Drug Deliveries to Homes in Salt Lake City. Last mile delivery has become a significant issue globally and in some places more than others. As the international trade network has become more efficient and effective, current pandemic-related backups notwithstanding, the so-called last mile, which is actually any distance between a hub where goods or even services like high-speed internet arrive and are then distributed from, as that globe-spanning network improves, the distance between these hubs and the final destination, like a person's home, just gets trickier to manage. Because rather than building out what amounts to big pipes between one hub and another, you have to figure out how to make a million small, straw-sized pipes between those hubs and each of these tiny, single-family or single-person locations. And that often requires entirely different specialties and infrastructure than is involved with the larger scale shipment of such things from hub to hub. Thus, we have portions of the United States where high-speed internet isn't a possibility. And in some cases, internet of any functional quality isn't readily available. We also have places where deliveries might technically be options, but only at great expense and irregularly. 
Such issues are even more fundamental to everyday existence in super-remote portions of relatively less well-off countries like Uganda and Nigeria. But these countries, in some limited contexts at least, have built out aerial means of crossing these distances, allowing them to ship, for instance, vital medicines from hubs, often larger cities where they're available, to more rural, far-flung regions where they might not otherwise arrive on time or at a price because of all the expenses typically associated with shipping thereabouts that anyone in the receiving region would be able to afford. A company called Zipline has been operating in Nigeria since 2016, helping hospitals deliver blood products on demand, reducing expected delivery times from about four hours by road down to something like 20 minutes, using miniature plane-like drones that are launched using a catapult system and which drop the requested products onto a designated delivery area near the recipient. Another company called LifeBank which originates in Nigeria, Zipline is based in California, uses a slower but more versatile over short distances quadcopter-style drone to deliver blood and other vital healthcare materials to areas where it might otherwise be tricky or expensive to ship such things, much less at a moment's notice, which means they're more likely to be able to help in emergency situations than traditional methods of delivery. That piece in Bloomberg, though, is focused on Zipline and how they're expanding their offerings after years of operating in Nigeria and Ghana to Salt Lake City in the U.S. A company called Intermountain Healthcare has partnered with Zipline to make their drone-based delivery service available to customers, which will allow them to request medical deliveries and have those deliveries of up to four pounds apiece dropped from fixed-wing drones into their yard or driveway. The company hasn't yet received approval from the Federal Aviation Administration to operate this service in Utah, and they won't begin operation until 2022. But company officials have said they're confident they'll be able to get the proper permissions in place and will be able to scale up operations, so they're making hundreds of such deliveries a day within four years of officially launching. And the last article I'd like to unspool today comes from Deutsche Well, and it's entitled Iraqi Prime Minister Unhurt After Assassination Attempt by Drone. In early November 2021, drones carrying explosives flew toward the Iraqi Prime Minister's home. Two of them were taken out by his security forces, but the third plowed into the building, blew up, and wounded several of the Prime Minister's security team. The Prime Minister wasn't at home when this happened, and was thus unharmed. But this attack is being seen as a harbinger of what's to come, as tactics utilized by non-state actors around the world become more common in civilian settings. That transmission of approaches, enabled in large part by the widespread availability of and inexpensive price tags on modern, consumer-grade drones. Said another way, you can get a halfway decent quadcopter drone these days for about $100, and in some cases even less. Really good ones can still cost thousands, but militant groups throughout the Middle East and gangs in South and Central America 
have started using the few hundred dollar models as weapons platforms, subbing them in, in some cases, for suicide bombers, and in others, mounting all kinds of weaponry, including things like pistols and shotguns, onto these drones, and then flying them into their enemies, and in some, thankfully still rare cases, into crowds of civilians. In Mexico, drug cartels have been using drones to spy on other cartels and the government, but also as platforms upon which to mount everything from anti-tank weaponry, like grenades and mines, to machine guns of various calibers. There have been documented instances of cartels using drones to threaten police forces as well. In one case, flying a drone with two grenades attached to it onto the outdoor patio of a police commander, along with a note telling him to back off from investigating the local cartel or else. Some such drones have also been rigged so they can remotely deploy explosives, allowing them to fly over rival cartel territory, drop grenades on them, and fly off, without that rival knowing for certain who to blame, and thus who to retaliate against. Interestingly, drones are also being used by such groups, from cartels to religious extremist organizations, to guerrilla groups operating around the world for propaganda purposes, shooting elaborate footage of their forces, their arsenals, their violent exploits, or embarrassing footage of their opposition in order to build up their reputation and ranks. These use cases are expected to spread still further in the coming years, and we've already seen a few instances that may foretell some of the threats drones will pose in other contexts, where other sorts of tactics and targets might cause even more damage. It was recently reported, for instance, that in 2020, a DJI Mavic 2, which is a small, quadcopter-style drone that can be easily purchased pretty much everywhere, was flown into an electrical power substation in Pennsylvania with a thick copper wire attached to the bottom of the craft. An internal U.S. government report, which was recently acquired and reported upon by ABC News, indicates that the DHS, FBI, and NCTC, all of whom have some jurisdiction over terrorism-related matters in the U.S., have been sharing information about this seeming attack and view it as a precursor to what may be on the horizon, as drones of this kind, very moderately augmented, could be capable of disrupting power throughout the U.S. by essentially creating short circuits and blowing transformers in these substations. In this way, significant damage could be done to limited regions or across a wide range of regions if a swath of such attacks happened in rapid succession without using any illegal, explosive, or traditional weaponry-associated components just a drone and a piece of conductive wire. It's also been reported that other unspecified but apparently similar instances have been documented by these agencies in the U.S. since 2017, and that in 2019, a swarm of drones descended over the Palo Verde Generating Station, the largest nuclear power plant in the U.S. located in Arizona. Their purpose is still unknown. Similar drone raids have been conducted over other sensitive bases and laboratories and power plants as well. And these drone swarms could be orchestrated by kids, 
with nothing better to do, but could also be foreign entities mapping out sensitive locations around the country, or even tests meant to check the defenses of such facilities in preparation for a future drone-based or otherwise attack. And if that latter case turns out to be what's been happening, there's a decent chance the intended future attack would succeed, as the general sense in the reports being shared by these organizations is that this is an attack vector that has not been well prepared for, especially if the attack doesn't use trackable materials, like explosives. We likely wouldn't even be able to figure out who was launching it which means a wave of attacks against vital infrastructure could occur without the U.S. government having any real sense of who to blame. There have been other strange drone-related events throughout the world of late, and while most of them can probably be safely attributed to well-meaning drone enthusiasts having fun and testing their drone orchestration capabilities, some of them may not be. And we're not in a place right now where we can tell the difference between harmless drone fun and potentially quite dangerous drone aggression. Like with pretty much every other technology ever developed, the same properties that make these devices potentially dangerous are what make them so valuable. Their declining price, their increasing utility and sophistication, their fracturing into high-end and low-end options, and the innovations surrounding their use are all exciting and worrying aspects of their introduction and evolution. And there's a chance we'll see regulations that clamp down on both harmful and valuable aspects of this technology before it really comes into its own. We may also see some dramatic and horrifying attacks that then lead to their practical inaccessibility for a time. Whatever the case, it's an interesting space to watch, as even those of us who aren't particularly interested in owning or flying one around may benefit from, or have cause to worry about, this facet of the larger tech hardware world in the near future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat by Matt Siegel. This book has an interesting bundle of historical stories related to the food that we eat, and in particular, some of the most popular foods we eat. And as you can probably imagine, a lot of those histories are fairly tumultuous and sad, and some of them are quite strange. You also get a pretty good sense of just how much of our modern culinary habits have gone severely awry from what we actually ideally are eating. And that's probably not a huge surprise, but the evolution of what we consider to be food, how we make food, how we process it, how we sell it and distribute it, is actually pretty interesting. And there's a large number of compelling factoids in addition to the well-researched historical narratives of these foods. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Secret History of Food by Matt Siegel. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.